0: Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Tonight's reading is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank
1: you, David. I would. <laughs> I was standing next to David, and we were singing, and I looked down, and I saw John Skipworth, and I thought, man, if John was up here, we'd have the beginning of a pretty good defensive line. We would play. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, oh, Father, 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 thank you for these great words that David has just read to us. We're so thankful that they are in the Bible that you have delivered to us through your Spirit and the way that they make us think. And the, may, the way that they make us want to strive for Christ to be formed in us and to be perfected, Father, in the way that, that He is in us. And exhibiting that before the eyes of, of, a, of a world that needs to see what, what your message of the gospel is truly about and what it does, not only uh, in bringing us in reconciliation and relationship to you, Father, but what it does when it comes to reside in the hearts and the minds of people we have their faith in you. So as we study tonight, Father, that's, we, we pray as we always do that we not take these words for granted, that we're flippant, lackadaisical with them, but that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that these words really come alive in everything that we do in your kingdom. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, the idea of perfection in our culture is problematic. It's problematic. A lot of people deep down think that they are perfect. They just don't want to be accused as such. You know, there's nothing that makes a fellow a little bit more angry or a gal more angry than to be accused. You think you're so perfect. On the other hand, there are people that struggle with the idea of perfection and the perfect. They don't want the pressure of being perfect because when they fall short, they feel guilt when they inevitably mess up. And one of the verses in the Bible that gives people fits is Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, where on the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of that great first chapter, Jesus says to people who are listening to him and trying to figure out the kingdom of God because that's the very thing that they hunger for, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Another text is, is found in what David read to us just a minute ago, uh, in verses um, uh, 28 and 29. This is from the 1984 uh, version of the NIV. It says, we proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in christ and it's to this end that i labor struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me now that that word perfect that paul uses in chapter 1 verse 28 always does a number on us because we're thinking of perfection or we think of the word perfect in the context of the way that we use it today we have advertisements all over the television, especially in the holiday season where they're trying to, to sell lots of diamonds, lots of stones, and it's the idea of the perfect diamond, meaning that there are no flaws, and that it's beautiful. Or we talk about a perfect day, and for most of us, a perfect day is uh, any day as long as there's no aggravation or responsibilities or deadlines. You know, one of the things that C.S. Lewis, in one of the, is, uh, the biograph- biographical works on Lewis, said that uh, he had kind of a love-hate with uh, the the mail, the postal system of England of his day, that a perfect day for him would be a day in which he was able to get up, have breakfast, be able to read, be able to write, and there would be no mail. For a lot of us, in a modern-day application, it would be to get up and to do our thing, and we wouldn't have any email that we would have to attend to. Uh, For those of us that like pecan pie, the perfect pecan pie would be the one in which there are no calories. You could eat all that you wanted. But that is not what the word teleos, which we translate as perfect or perfection, it's not what the word teleos means. The word means to be complete, to be put together well. It means to be whole. We could even define the word at times as, as mature, which is the way that the 2011 version of the NIV translates it. In verse 28, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature, in Christ. Now, one of the things you can never accuse Paul of, you could probably accuse Paul of a lot of things, but you can never accuse him of having some small goals in his life. What Paul wanted, as expressed in the text tonight, is he wanted everyone to be complete or whole, or mature, perfect, teleos, in Christ. And that's also God's goal for us. God's goal is not just merely to save a human being. God's goal is not just to keep that human being out of hell. God's goal is not merely to give him some some ideas about the right kind of life that gives you the parameters or the guardrails that you can live in between and live a relatively safe and uh, uh, a life that's free from the aggravation with with law-breaking. God's goal, though, is bigger than that. God's goal is for you to be like Christ. And Colossians is not the only place that Paul talks about that kind of goal and the reason for his ministry and the reason for the gospel. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes in verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. That one of the goals that God has for the people who have faith in him, who believe in the gospel, who trust and what it is that Christ has accomplished on the cross is to be conformed to his image. Which means, in the way that we talk about it around here from time to time, is that God is trying to make you the human being that he always intended for you to be. And a definition of spiritual maturity for us as we head into 2017 is this. Maturity for a Christian is defined by Christ's likeness. Maturity for a Christian is defined by Christ's likeness. Maturity is defined as looking like Jesus in all of your thoughts, and in all of your emotions, all of your affections, all of your actions. I mean, consider again Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. I want you to be conformed to the image of Jesus. But this time, think about that verse in the context of the verse right before it. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. He writes, and this is a verse that's known to all of us, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purposes. Now, one of the things that God never promises is an easy life, but what God does promise is that if you love Him, He will work out anything that happens in your life in such a way that you can look like His Son. This is a process That goes on and on and on and never ends in this life. You are continually a work in progress when it comes to looking like the Christ in all of your actions and in all of your words and all of your reactions and all of your actions and all of your affections. It is to look like Jesus, to be, as we talk about this a lot in in, in the context of of our studies, that we look, as C.S. Lewis called it, like many Christs. That, the, that San Antonio is being populated by people who are many Christ. They look like Jesus. In Second Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. This, this verse talks about how God is always doing a little polishing. He's doing a, a little chipping away, a little something, until the angels come to take you away, to be with Him in eternity. That during that time, your, God is always working to make you look like Christ. And so he says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul's goal was to help everyone into the process of being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Now, so far, what we've been able to see in our study of the first chapter of Colossians is is that Paul has addressed three significant themes about the greatness of the Messiah. The first is Jesus is the only thing you need for salvation. It's never going to be a Jesus plus something else formula. Jesus is the only thing you need. Jesus is all that you need to find yourself being reconciled to God. Number two, Jesus alone is powerful to defeat evil in the world. And then number three, Jesus and Jesus alone will bring you to Jesus-likeness. The question is, do you really believe that that is possible? That that's the transformation you're going through? That that is possible for you? I think that our biases show up here unconsciously more than we think. So Some years ago, I, w- I was ministering in, um, in another church in another state, And that particular church had split three times in 15 years. The third time had been probably the the most angry and rancorous uh, split, and it had happened five years before I had arrived at that church. And one Sunday night, I'm preaching on how disciples of Jesus are given to forgiveness. They are given to unity. They are given to the oneness of the body. And and even though there, there is time to time these these ideas, or these doctrines, or these philosophies, or these, these, these points of contention that rise up, that, that disciples are to stay united, especially when we're talking about these, these minor disagreements on lesser important matters. After the sermon, one of the elders came up to me, who had been a part of those 15 splits, and he said, uh, you don't think that we could ever really unite with those people who left us, do you? And it was one of those moments where I'm trying to figure out, and I figured out later that this was probably more of a statement than a question. But my response to him at that point was, with man this is impossible, but with God it is possible. A couple of years later, now that was the beginning of my ministry there, a couple of years later, an opportunity presented itself for there to be some mending of the fences between the church I was preaching for and the one that had been formed from that split. And the churches, the elders of those churches, had decided to worship one Sunday morning together. My respect for that elder that had asked me that question or made that statement to me that night about three years prior just skyrocketed. Not only had he been the elder that was probably the target of of most of the vicious attacks and had been the target uh, for a lot of the the things that had been said that were mean and and, and in a lot of ways were not true, But he had been the one that had been most beaten up. But he was also the one that on that morning, three years later, when that other church united with us in our auditorium to to praise God, he was the one who most happily and joyfully and graciously welcomed those people, some of those people, having been the guilty party of saying some of the most vicious things about him. I think... That that's what it means to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, who forgives completely. Here is Christ as He's being nailed to the cross, saying what? "Forgive them, for they know not what they do." What He was demonstrating in that moment and in that morning was His understanding of how much He had been forgiven and how much he, as a disciple of Jesus, was being called on in, very difficult situ- in a very difficult situation and circumstance to forgive those who had beaten him up so badly verbally during that split eight years prior. The question is how did that happen to him, and how does that happen to us? How is it that, you know, this Christ-likeness you know, Christ thing really just makes a lot of sense when we're living life on a day-to-day basis and there's not much challenge. It's just basically going through our days and not trying to mess up, right? But then, at some point, and it happens to each of us, there comes a moment where we are called to put to test just how much Christ is in us. And how much Christ-likeness we have developed in ourselves in order for Christ to be seen even in sometimes some ridiculously difficult situations. So how does that happen? The answer is in verse 27, the verse right before it. Paul says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of His mystery, which is Christ in you. Now, a lot of times the verse doesn't really grab us until we think back on some of the ground that we've already covered. You know, we see that 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 phrase, Christ in us all the time. It's us in Christ, Christ in us. We see it all the time. But then we begin to think, especially in light of the call to discipleship, that over and over again is given to us by Paul and by others, and that is to live like Christ, for people to see a mini-Christ every time they meet us. And then we think back on that verse, Christ in us, and we begin to think about all of the things beginning in verse 15 of chapter 1 that, that Christ is described as, and knowing that that Christ is in us makes all the difference. He is the image of the invisible God. When you look at Jesus, you see that invisible nature of God being made visible. When Thomas says to Jesus, you know, show us the Father and we'll be okay with it, what is it that Jesus says? How long have I been with you, Thomas? Uh, do you not know that when you look at me, you see the Father? He is the firstborn over all creation. He is the creator of all things. He is before all things. He holds all things together by His word. He is the firstborn from among the dead. He is the head of the church. All of this that describes Jesus is He who lives in in you. So to say that we need more than Christ is, is a bit ridiculous. You do not need more than Christ. You need to have more faith that you have Christ in you. You'll remember that Paul's goal is for believers to look like the Christ, and that will never happen until believers truly believe that Christ resides in them. Paul says elsewhere Galatians 2 verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In 1 John chapter 4, you dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. John 14 and verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. We do not need more than Christ in us. What we need is more Christ in us. And our task is to let more and more of our life come under the control of the Christ who is in us. Three things, and we're done. First, we need to accept the fact that we are going to suffer for the gospel. We will suffer for the gospel. Colossians 1, verse 24, he says, I rejoice in what was suffered for you, And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. That word afflictions does not mean that there is a gap in the work of Jesus on the cross that needs to be filled in somehow by Paul. No, in chapter 2, verse 15, he says what happened on the cross was that he triumphed over all the powers of darkness. The word afflictions is referencing the unfinished work of preaching the cross to people. No one... One of the more difficult facts of being a disciple of Jesus is to understand that no one hears the gospel without it costing someone something. It's the same with forgiveness. When you forgive somebody, when you you don't forgive somebody, what you have done is decide that you're not going to pay, you're going to make the other person pay. And when you don't forgive somebody, that debt that they owe you, that debt that you're not willing to give up for the sake of reconciliation, that debt that they owe you because they have wronged you, you're going to take it out in a pound of flesh. But when you decide that you're going to forgive somebody, you are deciding not just to remove an obstacle to reconciliation, but it's also a decision to let them off the hook and that you are going to suffer. Forgiveness is a process in which you are processing through all of the ways that God teaches us in His Word to process. What we are processing is the removal at our own expense the obstacles that stand in the way to reconciliation. I mean, think about what it took for God to forgive us. Christ lived a life that we should have lived, but didn't. And it cost God for us to be reconciled to him, his son. He died the death that we should have died, but won't because he did. It's the same with sharing the gospel with someone. When you share the gospel with someone, it always costs something to preach it. Paul is saying that that he was willing to pay that price because of the greatness of the gospel and how it transformed him and radically made him a different person and gave him a peace and a joy and all of these other things that he reveled in each day, but mainly the, the reconciliation to God and the relationship with Christ and knowing that the Spirit was making him more like that Christ every day. And all of that went back to him and his conversion. In Acts chapter 9, the Lord says to Ananias there in Damascus, after Paul Saul at that time has, has, has been knocked off of his horse and has been made blind and he's making his way to Damascus. It's Ananias that's supposed to go and to talk to Saul, later to become Paul, about the rest of his life and the direction he's to go on from Damascus on. And in verse 16, the Lord says to Ananias, I want you to go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings. And before the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, Paul understood that. Paul understood that. I wonder, though, if, if we really do. How can you be like the Christ if if you never suffer? One of my heroes in the faith is a fellow by the name of Kip Pittman. You don't know Kip. Because Kip is not around anymore. Kip was from the panhandle. He was from the metropolis of Groover. Population about, you know, 400 people and 10,000 and 10, cows. He looked and he talked and he had the mannerisms of Matthew McConaughey. And then one day Kip was told that the sore in his mouth was cancer. And that cancer spread like wildfire and the medical doctors uh, worked with him and worked with him and worked with him and the procedures got more and more radical and they ended up cutting away a good portion of his face to try to save him. And for the last year of his life, Kip could not stop drooling because they had basically cut away most of his face on the right side. And everywhere he went, he had to carry a towel. And then, as he was nearing the end, the cancer that had started in his mouth had worked its way down into his neck and his throat area, and the cancer ate through his jugular, and he bled out, and he died. Kip and I were close, working together with that church up in Kansas. And not long before he died, he went back to to uh, to spend his last days in the farmhouse in that panhandle town of Groover where he he had grown up, and in one of his more lucid moments, and it was something that he had said numerous times, even before he had left Kansas to come back to Texas, he said, I don't mind suffering as long as people see God and the Christ in me. Or he would say, I don't mind suffering as long as God is glorified in this suffering. And one of the things about Kip was that he never complained. He never asked the question why. He just wanted people to see as he suffered that God was his great treasure. And that they could take away his looks. They could take away his ability to keep saliva in his mouth. He could be humbled by the cancer, disfigured in his face. But that was okay because the one thing that could never be taken from him was God. And even in the way that he suffered... There was something about the gospel that was being, the power of the gospel, the greatness of the gospel and what it does to human beings was being seen. And there were people who did not know Kip very well who could only see a tragedy. Young man, three small children plus an adopted baby. They could only see a tragedy. But those of us who knew him and had spent time with him saw Christ in him. The, the second thing that Paul talks about is we have, to, we, we have to work towards Christ in us being constructed. Paul said we proclaim him. We proclaim him. And one of the things that Paul has already taught us about the gospel is that the gospel begins with a person. And later, Paul will write, in chapter 3 of the same letter, he says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's a decision, friends. That's a decision that you make to not be sovereign in your own life, but for the Christ who is in you to be sovereign. He says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. And let the word of God dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You know what that sounds like to me? It sounds to me that for Christ in us, to be what we move toward and and what is formed in us, that it becomes a full-time, 24-7, all-year, every day of your life endeavor. You know, um, I've I've spent uh, most of my life in the professional study of God's Word. But I would never say that, that I'm a scholar by any stretch of the imagination. But there's one area in which I am the greatest scholar in this room. And that is what God has done in my life. And the same thing can be said of you. And knowing how far I have to go in this, this allowing Christ in me to be fully seen and demonstrated and to be vibrant and dynamic, for to, to, to walk into a room And for people to understand and and for you to walk into a room and for people to see that there is something about you that's different. And it's not because you're a great joke teller or because you have this charismatic personality, but there's something as a human being that's so profound and so deep that they just see it automatically in the way that you look, in the way that your affections are displayed, in the way that you interact and serve with people and your values. And so knowing how far I have to go in all of this, I've begun the practice of praying this as one of my first prayers of the day. I pray for for Christ-likeness in my attitudes and in all of my frustrations and and in my sadnesses and, and in my encounters and my conversations and my reactions, in everything. Christ in me be seen. In other words... I just don't want Christ in me when I'm with you. I want Christ in me everywhere and all the time. In other words, it's in everywhere, in every area of my life. That's what I desire, to be all Christ. And then the last thing, we recognize that He works in us and through us. In, in verse 29, the last verse of the chapter, it's a verse that I, I thought about a lot as a missionary in Brazil. There were just times when you just wonder, how, how in the world are you going to make a difference? I mean, there was, there was a point where... Uh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it was despair, but it was, it was definitely some some, um, some... some deep frustrations trying to learn a language and we're in the capital city of the fifth largest nation in the world and we're running into diplomats you go to a party you're running into senators you're running into congressmen you're running into to 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 powerful people and uh it dawned on me one day just how effective would would somebody be say from china if they moved to Washington, D.C., having never spoken English, learning how to speak English, and being from a different country and from a different culture and trying in broken English to preach the gospel or to teach the gospel to high, highly educated, highly powerful, highly directed, highly energetic people in the nation's capital, just how effective would you be? And then I read this verse. And I, and I realized that I wasn't in it alone. If Christ was in me, then I wasn't struggling alone. And Paul says, to this end I labor, struggling with all His energy, which so powerfully works in me. I heard about a bike race in India <laughs> where the goal is not to go the farthest or to go the fastest, but it's, it's to see who can go the shortest distance without falling off their bike. I heard that, and I thought, I know way too many Christians that live their life as a disciple of Jesus that way. I just want to see how slow and the shortest distance I can go without falling off. They want to go the least distance, exert the least effort. And when I think about what it is that Paul is saying about His energy, struggling with all of His energy, which powerfully works in me. I think of other passages, like Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says, "I, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. And so, somehow, to attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. In Christ Jesus. You could probably say a lot of things about Paul, but a spiritual couch potato, he was not. Brad's going to lead us in a song right now, and maybe there's some ways that we can we can encourage you in this direction that as a disciple of Jesus you are on all the time. And it is at times a a dangerous journey, at times It is just filled with elation. But it is the most significant and profound and meaningful journey a human being can can ever enter. And that is through belief that our God who created everything at great expense to himself has brought us through forgiveness to himself and is not just trying to get our sins forgiven, but is working through His Spirit and through His Word and through fellowship and through all of these different means to make us aware that Christ is in us, which means that we are moving towards Christ-likeness in all that we do to become the human being that God always wanted for us to be. And maybe you've been struggling with that a little bit. I, I don't know where you are. But the thing to do is to make that decision that Christ will be seen in me, whether it's in the suffering, whether it's in the tragedies, whether it's in the darkness, whether it's in the valleys, or whether it's up on a mountaintop, that people will see the resounding image of Christ in me, in all that I do, all that I say, in my emotional life, in the way that I react, in my behaviors, in my actions, in my words, in my wisdom, it will be Christ in me. That's what it means to be spiritually mature, the degree of Christ-likeness you attain. It's not about coasting. It's not about being flippant or lackadaisical or lazy-minded or lazy physically when it comes to living out the, the implications and the ramifications of the gospel when we embrace it. And if you're struggling with that, you're struggling with that, I want you to know first, you're not alone. But number two, there are ways to help and there are ways to encourage. And one of those ways tonight is while one of our shepherds leads us in a song where we praise God for the greatness of His work in us, is to come and to say to your brothers and sisters, pray for me, or to say to your shepherds, I I need you to pray for me, but to make those needs known so that we can enter into this task together because we are one body. Let's stand and sing.